Welcome back to the podcast history of our world. Chapter 71, Downfall of the Roman Kingdom. As far as auspicious sounding baby names go, you can't go wrong with anything that means king. Ray is still fairly popular. Rex, more for puppies and tyrant lizards. Ulrich is due for a comeback, although maybe not the best for our Roman episodes. And even though you can't type Leroy into Google without autocorrect essentially acting out the meme for you, Leroy comes from the French le roi, or the king. Where is this all going? Why, to the Etruscan word for king, of course, which is Lucomo, or Lucuman. The same name as the man prophesied to become king of Rome. Coincidence? Or optimistic planning on his parents' part? Probably neither, and most likely a bit of historical backtracking. His real Etruscan name was forgotten through the centuries. When the first historians realized this oversight, they simply replaced his name with the Etruscan word for his job. Who's going to notice? Now that we've sorted that out, you can forget all about it. If Lucomo's destined to be a Roman king, you'll need a proper Roman name. Lucius Tarquinius Priscus ought to do it. Or in English, Tarquin the Elder. How can he be an elder when there's no younger? Never you mind that yet. There's plenty to do as it is, especially since he's essentially starting from scratch, although not alone. His wife Tanaquil left behind a life of wealth and comfort as an Etruscan noblewoman to make her husband's fate a reality. So you better believe she's going to do whatever she can to make it happen. And not from a Lady Macbeth stereotype either. No goading or nagging or damn spots here. The two are a team. Her financial resources and social graces open the door to high society for Tarquin, where he's able to quickly gain a reputation for being courteous and kind. One thing leads to another until the king of Rome, Ancus Marcius, takes notice of this newcomer and invites him to become a trusted advisor at the palace. Tarquin would give counsel over matters of the state, earning enough trust to soon become appointed guardian of the king's two young sons. That was fast. So when in 616 BC, when Ancus Marcius dies, no one suspected the ambitious Etruscan couple, because they had nothing to do with it. Yeah, they're decent people. Decent, but determined, since Darkwin gets right to work positioning himself to take over the throne. Remember, at this point, there's no tradition of primogeniture in Rome. The kingship has to be voted by popular assembly and approved by the Senate. Although it's probably a good idea to get Marcius' sons out of town for a while. Can't let them getting any crazy ideas. So off they go on a surprise hunting expedition. And once they're gone, Tarquin goes campaigning, shaking hands with the plebs, kissing babies, working the pancake social, and making a case for why it's okay for him, a foreigner, to become the next king. Even though Rome had non-Latin kings already, Numa Pompilius, Tarquin still needed to convince people he was Roman through and through. After all, this is still very much a xenophobic society, not in the afraid-of-strangers way, but inherently distrustful and stabby towards strangers. Rome has no qualms about fighting its Latin cousins, so you'd be correct in assuming there was some trepidation towards Tarquin's candidacy. But maybe it was a keen grasp of political wrangling, or just the simple pragmatism of the Romans to fill the power vacuum pronto-like. The votes were in, and Tarquin was crowned king. Over the next nearly four decades, he would lead Rome through another golden age, with vast building projects, societal reforms, and the ceremonial beating up of anyone not Roman. So what specifically did he do? But for starters, the Circus Maximus, the great chariot raceway, was constructed, as was the foundation to the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus on the Capitoline Hill. 
But ho-hum, every king and emperor we've heard about builds temples and arenas. Big deal. You know what sets apart a great ruler? Sewer systems. Maybe not the first thing you'd think of, but sewers are essential for preventing a public health disaster. Even a simple uncovered drainage ditch has significant benefits. Which at this point is all the great sewer of Rome, the Cloaca Maxima, is. A basic system of draining marshland and filth out of the city and into the Tiber River. And as the city grows, it'll be covered and built over, serving as a focal point for an ever-expanding complex series of pipes. It may not get the celebrity treatment something like the Colosseum gets, but the Cloaca Maxima is one of Rome's engineering masterpieces. It even has its own patron goddess, Cloacina, who is probably taken for granted, until there's a torrential downpour, and one of the major outflow drains gets clogged with all sorts of unspeakable horrors, and then by the gods, what's this coming out of the fountains? Well, I guess praying to the porcelain gods takes on a whole new meaning. Anyway, Tarquin's long reign further elevated Rome's status as a real power player on the Italian peninsula. Indeed, as a tireless king, he would have been working right till old age claimed him. Or he would have, if he hadn't underestimated the delayed ambitions of two spurned princes. Those sons of Ancus Marcius had never forgotten about that hunting trip. And even though Tarquin had done nothing to harm them, or broken any laws or cultural mores, the princes had apparently spent the last four decades plotting their revenge. The plan to become king? Well, one of them at least, went like this. Two hired goons dressed like shepherds pretended to have a loud and heated argument near the palace. After the commotion attracted guards, the fake shepherds shouted even louder and demanded that King Tarquin hear their appeal. Tarquin agreed to this, seeing as how even he could hear them at this point. The two shepherds were brought before him, still yelling at one another, and told to be silent. One of the shepherds emphatically pleaded his fake case with such acting chops that Tarquin was thoroughly engrossed in his tale, oblivious to the other shepherd removing an axe from his robe. The king failed to react, and the weapon was sunk deep into his brow, a mortal blow for sure. The assassins try to book it, unable to wrench the axe free, but are caught and arrested. Once the two brothers hear of this, they flee Rome, although they too are caught and executed at a later time. As for now, in the year 578 BC, a Roman king has been slain in his own throne room. If word were to get out, who knows what might happen? Panic in the streets, economic uncertainty, or the worst-case scenario, any number of would-be kings willing to plunge Rome into civil war, just for a chance at power. But none of those situations would happen, as the person who brought Tarquin to power would also be the one to preserve his legacy. His wife, Tanaquil, arrived and assessed the scene. Her husband was lying in a pool of blood, most certainly dead. Guards were sweeping the palace for any other attackers, and a large crowd had since gathered outside, drawn by cries of alarm. Despite the chaos, Tanaquil began her unenviable task, display a calm, controlled demeanor while grappling with internal grief. She first ordered the palace cleared of all but the most essential staff, and the gates closed behind them although not before making an exaggerated display of bringing in doctors. Not much will cure an axe to the face, but the public doesn't need to know that. Tanaquil leans out a window to inform the people that Tarquin had been injured by some baseless cowards, but the wound had already been examined and cleaned and all signs look favorable. Everything's fine. So anyway, while Tarquin's recovering, the role of regent goes to Servius Tullius. 
Uh-huh, so who's he? The short answer is that he's the royal couple's son-in-law. But you know there's always more to the story, right? So the less short version is that Servius was the son of a noblewoman captured from an enemy city, juries out whether it was Etruscan or Latin, and taken as a servant for the palace. This woman becomes the favorite of Tanaquil, and at some point gives birth to a boy, Servius. The events leading to and following his birth vary, but suffice to say they're all a little odd. Much like Romulus and Remus's mother, Servius's mother was divinely... inspired while sacrificing at the Temple of Vesta, goddess of the hearth. When he was an infant, multiple servants reported seeing his head burst into flames as he slept, only for the fire to die out the moment he awoke. For Tanaquil, this was an obvious sign Servius was destined for greater things, and he was given an upbringing fit for royalty. Her investment in him paid off, and Servius grew into an intelligent and eager young man. Tarquin was so impressed with Servius's moral character that he regarded him as a son, which was then made official through marriage to their daughter. Alright, so back to 578 BC, and Servius is kneeling over the bloodied corpse of his father-in-law, with Tanaquil holding his hands tight. Dropping her composed facade for a moment, she pleads with him to avenge Tarquin's death, and to protect her and the family from those who are likely still out there, intending to do them harm. She also gives him a surprising message. The throne is yours, Servius, if you are a man. It does not belong to those who have wrought this worst of crimes. Follow the guidance of the gods. Let that heaven-sent flame now inspire you. Rouse yourself in earnest. We too, though foreigners, have reigned. Bethink yourself not whence you sprang, but who you are. She was already right about one king. Maybe she'll go two for two. So with Servius acting as regent, she was giving him on-the-job training and buying time to build up political support. After all, the Senate would still need to approve him despite her premonitions. Although she really did have a knack for picking winners, Servius proved himself a worthy regent, and when Tarquin's death could no longer be concealed, the Senate and people had accepted a new leader. A few days later, Servius Tullius becomes the sixth king of Rome. This makes him the second in a sort of Etruscan dynasty, although two kings is hardly a dynasty, just like three prawns are hardly a galaxy. Nomenclature aside, there is some dispute whether Servius was actually elected or whether him being the default king just sort of segued into legit king. But hey, if no one's complaining right now, then there's no problem. Time for Servius to make a name for himself. He continued Tarquin's legacy of practical urban development. The city boundaries were expanded to include the three remaining hills that make up the seven hills of Rome, these being the Quirinal, Viminal, and Esquiline. Roads, causeways, and drainage canals were added there, new structures were planned on a sort of grid-type layout, and there was a general architectural shift away from mud-and-stick huts towards something a bit more civilized. Actually, the inhabitants of one area known for these huts were relocated and their homes demolished to make way for the new forum. There's also the expected warring against the Latins and Sabines. Or is it Sabines? I don't remember what I said last time as well as a coalition of Etruscan cities who couldn't care at all about this so-called Roman-Etruscan dynasty nonsense. Yet most of all, Servius was most remembered for his sweeping changes to Roman society through the first census. Accounts vary, but the number that seems to be agreed on is 84,700. 
Although the original records were destroyed in a fire, man, the real number is probably half that. And anyway, once the population was accounted for, including a survey of land ownership and wealth, the people were divided into five classes based on the monetary value of their property. This new system did away with old notions of tribes and heredity as an indicator of status. The state didn't care if you were born into money or earned it yourself. The only thing that matters, well, besides paying your fair share of the taxes, is that you showed up for military service using the arms and armor available to your class. Only instead of a cleric wielding a mace, you'd expect to see those at the top class wearing the finest brass helmets, greaves, shield and mail, and equipped with a sword and spear. Those in the bottom fifth class, for example, well, there's always rocks. And the humble sling. Oh, and don't discount a cloth tunic. It soaks up your blood and guts way better than metal. Military duty aside, this system also gave those at the top the most voting rights i.e. their votes count significantly more than the other classes, despite having a lower population. Sounds unfair, but the principle behind all this is those who have the most have the most to lose. Meaning when it comes to voting on critical issues like declaring war, they would hopefully think long and hard about their decision to fight. And if it comes to that, then they'd fight all the harder, knowing how much is at stake. At least that's the idea. Now, there is an unofficial sixth class, comprised of the indigent and those unable to pay taxes. Servius declared that they are entitled to a vote, and are exempt from military service. But a vote is all they get. The entire population of the poorest Romans were effectively silenced, possibly to appease the wealthy patricians furious at these changes. As Cicero, the famous Roman politician and orator later writes, he made this division in such a way that the greatest number of votes belonged not to the common people, but to the rich, and put into effect the principle which ought always to be adhered to in the commonwealth, that the greatest number should not have the greatest power. The Servian reforms, as they would be called, started out with good intentions, although Servius could not foresee how corrupted his system would become. Rome was inexorably headed towards a plutocratic future where those with the least were expected to bear the most, and those at the top would simply shirk military service onto foreign auxiliaries. But let's move along and talk about how Servius's reign comes to a close. You see, while I've already mentioned that Tarquin the Elder treated Servius like a son, I neglected to mention that Tarquin already had two biological sons of his own, named Lucius Tarquinius and Arens Tarquinius. Since history doesn't usually call them Tarquin Jr. and Sr., we get Tarquin the Elder and Tarquin the Younger. There's also a daughter who married Servius, whose name I'm unsure about, and another daughter named Tarquinia, who we'll come back to towards the end of this episode. The Elder's son Tarquin, Tarquin the Younger, we'll call him Tarquinius to keep from getting more confused, was like his dad in many ways. He knew it was his destiny to be king of Rome, that's actually where the similarities end. Where Dad was a resolute leader, he was a petulant brat, raised without ever knowing want or hard work. The crown was always assumed to be his one day, so he was fairly livid over being rejected by not only the Senate and people of Rome, but his own mother. Servius sought to assuage any lingering grudges Tarquin's sons might have by marrying off his daughters to them, but no such luck. Tarquinius spread vicious gossip about Servius's questionable status as king, 
while his wife tried her best to defend her father without dishonoring her husband. Oy. Meanwhile, younger brother Arons did nothing. He didn't care who was in charge, preferring to continue living in luxury as Servius's son-in-law, which just infuriated his wife, Tullia. She couldn't stand Arun's lack of ambition, his complacency, his lack of greed. If only she had married his older brother, the go-getter. Oh, how things would be different. Yeah, well, wouldn't you know it, after a few meetings, Tarquinius and Tullia begin an illicit relationship that culminates in the double murders of their respective spouses. They're never charged with any crime, but people had to be a little suspicious towards them, especially since they married shortly afterwards. Servius didn't approve of this union, although he also didn't suspect any foul play. The historian Livy writes that the marriage further embittered Tarquinius, who had developed an unappealing idleness reminiscent of his deceased brother. But don't go blaming Tullia. The problem lies in her good-for-nothing husband. She still got visions of being queen, and there aren't any princes left to marry. So, taking a page from her grandmother-in-law Tanaquil, she gives a pep talk to her husband. And by pep talk, I mean belittling his ego. After all, she didn't want to marry a man who just wanted to be her husband. She wanted a man who wanted to be king. If you are the man to whom I thought I was married, then I call you my husband and my king. But if not, I have changed my condition for the worse, since you are not only a coward, but a criminal to boot. A Lady Macbeth reference seems unavoidable at this point, although it bears repeating that Livy, like Shakespeare, likes inventing his own dialogue. Et tu, Livy. Yet whatever was said to him brought Tarquinius out of his torpor. Now properly motivated, he begins cozying up to the older patrician families by drudging up feelings of nostalgia for his father's reign and stoking fears of the current one. The Servian reforms convinced many in the upper crust that their king didn't have their best interests at heart. It was bad enough he opened up high society to those with wealth but without a proper Roman lineage, and extended voting rights to all plebs, and maybe he really wasn't elected after all. But bigger than all that was yet another rumor going around, one Tarquinius eagerly promulgated. He heard on good authority that Servius was going to dismantle the kingship in favor of a dual consular system, where two elected officials would oversee affairs of state. Never mind that these officials would most likely come from the patrician class, the bigger point here is doubt. Doubt over preserving the status quo. Doubt over whether the plebs would know their place. Doubt over the future of Rome. Tarquinius had played up their anxieties and won the support of many in the upper class. Yeah, just for good measure, he also went around distributing handouts and bribes to the lower classes as well. Now, you can't be too careful, you know? Of course, in a city the size of Rome, you can't go around like this and not expect word to spread. Eventually, the news gets back to Servius, who, to his credit, refrains from believing hearsay and instead invites his son-in-law over to try and hash things out. But no deal. Tarquinius replied curtly that he would only speak to the king in front of the senate, meaning lawyer up, big guy. And so the two met before all the senators of Rome, many of which were already inclined to support Tarquinius. The courtroom drama began with the upstart prince. Tarquin, my grandfather, obtained the sovereignty of the Romans after fighting many hard battles in its defense. He being dead, I am his successor according to the laws common to all men, both Greeks and barbarians, and it is my right, 
just as it is of any others who succeed to the estates of their grandfathers to inherit not only his property, but his kingship as well. The Senate neither passed a vote in your favor, nor did you obtain this power by a legal election of the people. If you have any just reason to allege against what I have said, I am ready to leave the decision to these men, whom you can name none better in the city. But if you attempt to run away from this tribunal and fly for refuge, I will not permit it. For I am prepared not only to speak in defense of my rights, but also, if this should fail to convince you, to act with force. Ooh, pretty strong stuff. And when he was finished, it was Servius's turn to defend himself. Anything, it seems, senators, that is unexpected is to be expected by a mortal man, and nothing should be regarded as incredible, since Tarquinius here is set upon deposing me for my office, though I received him when he was an infant, and, when his enemies were forming designs against his life, preserved him and brought him up. When he came to be a man, I saw fit to take him for a son-in-law, and in the event of my death was intending to leave him heir to all that I possessed. But, with everything that has happened, I shall lament my misfortune later. At present, I will plead my just cause against him. Concerning the kingship, since this is the point of your accusation, learn not only by what means I obtained it, but also for what reasons I am not resigning it, either to you or to anyone else. When I took upon myself the oversight of the commonwealth, finding that there were certain plots forming against me, I desired to surrender the conduct of affairs to the people, and having called them all together in assembly, I offered to resign the power to them, exchanging this envied sovereignty, the source of more pains than pleasures, for a quiet life free from danger. But the Romans would not permit me to follow this preference, nor did they see fit to make anyone else master of the state but retained me and by their votes gave me the kingship, which belonged to them, Tarquinius, rather than to you or your brother. The Roman people did not call to power the heir of the father, but rather the person who was worthy to rule. And if I did not obtain the office legally, as you say, then surely it is these men here that I am wronging, and not you. But I am not wronging these men or anyone else. The length of my reign, which has now lasted forty years, bears me witness that power was both then justly given to me and is now justly vested in me. For during this time, none of the Romans ever thought I reigned unjustly, nor did either the people or the Senate ever endeavor to drive me from power. Servius continued to respond to each of Lucius's accusations in the same methodical fashion until it's time for a closing remark. It appears that it is no wrongdoing on my part that has drawn upon me the ill will of certain persons, but it is rather the benefits I have conferred on the plebeians that grieve you unjustly. If you believe that Tarquinius here, by taking over the government, will administer affairs better than I, I shall not envy the commonwealth a better ruler. And after I have surrendered the sovereignty to the people, from whom I received it, and have become a private citizen, I shall endeavor to make it plain to all that I not only know how to rule well, but can also obey with equanimity. Servius had sufficiently shamed any senator who doubted his rule, but he wasn't finished yet. Outside he goes, ordering heralds to summon a public meeting so all of Rome could hear of Tarquinius's slanderous claims. Of course, Servius had the meeting out of his hand. The man had spent enough time on the job to know how to work a crowd. They boo and hiss as Servius recounts what took place in the courtroom just moments before, and when he offers to resign and spare Rome any further agita, the mob instead offers to stone Tarquinius. Hey, now that's politics. 
With the Senate and the people back in his corner, Servius could return to governing his city. He even tried to present Tarquinius with an offer of reconciliation and move on from this messy business. But any such peace was temporary. His son-in-law was not done, not by a long shot. He tried to do this the right way, take down the king and court following the rules and laws of Rome. But that only brought humiliation and failure. Now the kid gloves come off. On a day in 535 BC, when many were busy with the harvest, Tarquinius appeared in the farm with a large escort. This in and of itself wasn't uncommon. Any wealthy Roman citizen wouldn't be caught dead without an entourage. But these men were carrying swords and axes, and Tarquinius had dressed himself up as king. They called out for the Senate to convene, and a messenger was dispatched to alert Servius to the news. When the king heard of this, he raced from his home on the Esquiline Hill, accompanied only by a few attendants. Arriving shortly after, he found a packed Senate house and an imposter sitting in the king's seat. He called out, Who, most wicked of men, gave you authority to assume this attire? To which Tarquinius replied, Your boldness and impudence, Tullius, for though you were not even a free man, but a slave and the son of a slave mother, whom my father got from among the captives, you nevertheless have dared to proclaim yourself king of the Romans. Well, what can be done here? Servius is out of breath, adrenaline pumping through his veins, his wits clouded with anger. A lifetime of honoring the wishes of Tanaquil to keep her family safe led to this her son leading a coup against him. There would be no negotiations or fancy legal schooling this time. When an upstart lion seeks to overthrow the pack leader, the only course of action is to attack. So Servius rushed towards a grinning Tarquinius, who leapt off the throne to confront his foe. As the younger and far stronger of the two, he easily grabbed the old king and pushed him out of the senate house and into the open. There in the doorway and in full view of the city, Tarquinius took hold of Servius around the waist, lifted him up high, and threw the king down the stone steps leading to the forum. Horrified onlookers watched the violence unfold as their bloodied king struggled to stand upright. Servius had been grievously injured, although if he could make it back home, his family and allies would keep him safe to fight another day. His attendants had already fled in terror, and despite all he had done for the people, no one came forward to lend their support. So it was that he began his grueling trek before Tarquinius's men caught up to him in a narrow alleyway. After a long reign of 44 years, Servius Tullius was mortally wounded and left to bleed out, alone. And despite an ignoble end to a lifetime of public service, the indignities weren't over just yet. Tullia had arrived by carriage to the Forum to support her victorious husband. Seeing him outside the Senate House, she loudly hailed him as king and offered a quick blessing for the gods' support. Tarquinius responded by snapping at her to get as far away as possible in case the mob turned violent, which it could. Her driver took her through the safer back roads until they came across a narrow road and the sight of Servius's body. This road soon came to be called the Vicus Sceleratus, or Street of Infamy, because, as the story goes, Tullia was so angered with her driver pointing out the king's corpse was blocking the way that she grabbed the reins herself and drove the carriage right over her father, splattering blood on both the carriage and her clothes. Now, it was tradition to carry a dead king's body into the farm, decorated in royal garments so all could grieve and pray before commencing with funerary rites. But all that emotion could also stir up feelings of revenge. 
Acquiring the body, therefore, would have been useful, although Tarquinius missed his chance. Under cover of night, Servius's wife, along with close family and allies, retrieved the old king's body and brought it outside the city walls for burial. Servius Tullius wasn't given a royal funeral, but he could at least be at peace. His wife dies the next day. By her own hand is the official story, but those in the know whisper of matricide. Tarquinius had finally achieved what he and his wife had truly been willing to do anything for, the kingship of Rome. Of course, in a bit of twisted irony, the man who accused Servius of occupying the throne without being elected is, himself, never elected. But introspection isn't one of his finer points. Instead, it's a predilection for violence and intimidation. It's what got him on the throne in the first place, and it's what will keep him there as well. His authority would derive power from fear, by executing supporters and former allies of Servius, surrounding the palace with so many bodyguards it looked like a military camp, and conducting trials against alleged enemies of the state, many of whom were senators and therefore happened to be amongst the wealthiest in the city. Tarquinius is the only judge at these trials, and once they're executed, no surprise, all their money and property is confiscated by him. All this head-chopping left a sizable vacancy in the Senate, mind you some of which he left empty, some he filled with followers and friends. Yet loyalty was not fully rewarded, as even they found that their senatorial authority had been greatly reduced. The king had consolidated power in a frighteningly quick and effective manner. And if you liked having your head attached to your neck, you'd keep your mouth shut. For these reasons, many in private refer to their new king as Tyrant. Later on, Tarquinius was given a surname to distinguish him from his father of the same name. This Tarquin would be called Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, meaning Tarquin the Haughty, the Arrogant, the Proud. Aside from the mass executions and general terror, he did have a few positive accomplishments, such as founding two of Rome's oldest colonies, Signia and Circei, and acquiring three of the nine Sibylline books, which were transcriptions of the prophecies, visions, and predictions from an ancient oracle of Apollo. Why not the whole set is kind of an amusing story. See, Tarquinius was offered all nine books from a Greek sibyl. The name gets translated as prophetess, but the price she asks for is ridiculous. He dismisses this as a scam and sends her off. Well, that sibyl burns three of the books and returns the next day to offer the remaining six for the exact same price. He's dumbfounded by her strange negotiating tactics and again kicks her out. Three more books are burned, and the next day she's back again charging the same high price, but only for the remaining three. Now he's not so sure it's a scam, and after a visit to the augurs, this time he caves in. Good thing, too, as these books become one of Rome's most guarded treasures, and are consulted in times of disaster and peril. In 83 BC, when this copy is ruined in a fire, the Senate goes to extraordinary lengths tracking down and recording whatever fragments still remain in the world. This final version survived another roughly 300 years until it too was destroyed, only this time on purpose, by a Roman general paranoid that the prophecies within were being interpreted to bring him down. But back to Tarquinius's achievements, he also organized a meeting of all the Latin tribes to establish a new Latin League. Different from the old one back with Alba Longa, and also it wouldn't be called the Latin League. It'll be more like a band called Rome and the Latins. Tarquinius's rationale is simple. They all have a shared ancestry, language, religion, you name it. The Etruscans and other Italic tribes pose a threat to everyone, and quite frankly, if we all join up, think of the power. As long as Rome is in charge, of course. 
He'll get his way on this, but not without the depravity he's becoming known for. At the first meeting with these leaders, he's late. Very late. Like it's almost sunset and they've been there for hours. A chief from the Latin town of Aracia, Turnus Herdonius, loses his patience and starts convincing his countrymen the Roman king is not to be trusted. Case in point, everyone came quite a distance to be here, and where is their host? No doubt testing their patience to see how easily they would submit to him. But hey, do what you want. Or in his words, If his own people bitterly rue his sway, seeing how they are being butchered, sent into exile, and stripped of all their property, what better fate can the Latins hope for? Enter Tarquinius, of course, and the room goes silent. Hmm, oh, this Turnus is going to be a problem. But removing foreign leaders isn't as simple as killing your own people. So Tarquinius bribes a servant of Turnus to conceal a large stash of swords in the chief's quarters. The next morning, the leaders meet, and Tarquinius reveals some shocking news. Turnus has been planning to murder several of the chiefs sitting in this very room to become king of the Latins. The evidence is in his personal quarters. Believe me, I've got a sharp mind for solving mysteries. Turnus has no problem letting his room be searched, seeing as how he's totally unaware of the planted evidence, and desperately pleads innocence when those swords are found. The other chiefs will have none of it, and quickly have him killed through an old practice. Turnus was brought into a lake where a wooden crate was placed on his head and filled with rocks until he drowned. The other Latin chiefs were so grateful that Tarquinius uncovered this plot that they pledged their support. Their armies would fight alongside, and more importantly, under Rome. Wishing to take advantage of this new arrangement, he wasted little time going after the Sabines and Etruscans, channeling that penchant for bloodshed towards a proper Roman outlet. In warfare, even his political enemies had to admit he was good at it. Good at leading soldiers, good at conquering, good at slaughtering his enemies. New territories were added to Rome's growing dominion, and these victories were commemorated with new temples to the gods, roads, covered drainage channels, you name it. So many, in fact, that laborers were drafted from the public to work round the clock on any one of Tarquinius's building projects. The plebs might resent it, but he knew as long as they were kept busy while he was away, there wouldn't be any surprises waiting for him upon his return. But that's the problem with people who think they plan for every little contingency. There's always something you can't predict, and it always arrives at the most inopportune time. Sextus Tarquinius was the youngest of Tarquinius's three sons, and stationed at a military camp besieging the town of Ardea, capital of the Latin Rutuli tribe. What happened to the whole one Latin nation thing? Well, the Rutuli were accused by Tarquinius of harboring and abetting Roman fugitives. After careful deliberation, it was decided that for this crime, they need to be conquered. And certainly not because their city was fabulously wealthy, not at all. Yep, so it's 509 BC, and Sextus is hosting a drinking party at his quarters with other younger nobles. With the wine flowing, the men start gushing about their wives and how wonderful they are. And the more they drank, the more wild their praise, until a cousin of Sextus, Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus, yeah, another LT, stands up and has the brilliant idea to ride back to Rome so they can all check up on them. He boasts that his wife, Lucretia, was far superior to the virtues of any other woman, and he'll prove it. So off the drunken princes go, and find their wives attending a dinner party, laughing and drinking with friends, and certainly not riding around at night looking to settle drunken bets. Next, they rode north to Colatia, hometown of 
Collatinus, and there they saw Lucretia surrounded by maids and spinning wool. It was night, and she was still hard at work. The men exchanged glances and agreed. She needed to get out more. No, she was joyously proclaimed the fairest of them all, and to celebrate this, Colatinus invited his friends to stay for supper before riding back to camp. This is where things take a dark turn, as what should have been innocent fun, by 6th century BC standards, was twisted in the vile mind of the king's youngest son. Where the other princes admired Lucretia for embodying the ideals of a dutiful Roman wife, Sextus saw an object to corrupt. A few days after that night, Sextus took a single attendant to ride back to the home of Colatinus, where he was welcomed and given dinner by Lucretia. As it was late, he was shown the guest room and bid a good night. When the household was asleep, the prince grabbed a sword and quietly entered Lucretia's room. Covering her mouth to muffle any sounds, he spoke. I am Sextus Tarquinius. I have a sword in my hand, and if you utter one word, you shall die. Lucretia listened, terrified, as Sextus professed his desire for her. If she would satisfy him now, he would make her his wife later, to become a princess of Rome. But she ignored his words and struggled against him. Then he offered a second option. Reject his advances and die. But not just a normal death, for he would also kill one of her slaves, position their bodies together in bed, and claim he caught her in a scandalous affair. In order to preserve his cousin's honor, he would have no choice but to kill them both. Her death would bring shame and disgrace to her family, and she would be denied all funeral services. And so another sickening decision has to be made. We must remember how important honor is to a Roman family name, or gens, and while resisting Sextus's advances might preserve her personal honor, the reality is that her death would dishonor her family, because no one would doubt Sextus's story. Even if everything about the events leading up to this supposed honor killing seem incredibly suspicious, he is still a man and a prince. If his dad can butcher the previous king and half the senate, what are the odds he'll get in trouble for murdering a lesser noble's wife and her slave? And this is a sad truth of the Roman kingdom, one which Lucretia was tragically all too aware of in that next horrific moment. Sextus left the next day, proud of his foul deeds. Lucretia left as well, dressed in a black shawl. He was headed back to the camp at Ardea. Her destination was Rome, to her father's house. She arrived while he was entertaining family, and they rushed over to assist Lucretia, who gave no reason for her visit, but simply cried. Eventually, she requested that messengers summon her husband, and as many trusted friends, family, and kinsmen as possible, to hear her news. One by one they arrived, with Colatinus arriving from Ardea, along with a close friend, Lucius Junius Brutus. Lucretia wept at the sight of her husband, who cluelessly asked whether all was well. Ignoring him, she told those present of all that happened, and before revealing the name of her rapist, made them swear he would be punished. This was done, and the name of Sextus Tarquinius was revealed. Lucretia kissed her father, prayed to the gods for peace, and withdrew a dagger hidden under her robes only to plunge it into her heart. The women howled in grief as Lucretia's father held her body in his arms, calling out her name over and over again until her last breath. Despair seemed to overtake the household, but it was not Colatinus, the husband, who made the next move, but his friend, the aforementioned Brutus. He withdrew the dripping knife from Lucretia's chest, held it for all to see, and spoke. 
by this blood most pure before the outrage wrought by the king's son, I swear. And you, O gods, I call to witness that I will drive hence Lucius Tarquinius Superbus together with his cursed wife and his whole brood with fire and sword and every means in my power, and I will not suffer them or anyone else to reign in Rome. This Brutus is an ancestor of the Brutus you're probably thinking of. He's also the son of Tarquinia, daughter of Tarquin the Elder, the good one. His brother and many of his friends were executed during the Purge not too long ago, and he was spared only by pretending to be dumb. Hence the name Brutus, Latin for dullard. No more of that, however. It's time for action. Lucretia's body was brought to an elevated spot near the Senate House for the public to see and hopefully become an overt symbol for everything wrong with the Tarquins, maybe even the kingship in general. Once the assembly had gathered, Brutus relayed the recent wickedness of Sextus Tarquinius, and then about all the evils of his wicked family, the murders, the rejection of law and decency, how Servius Tullius was thrown down a flight of stairs and run over by his own daughter. The mob cried out for Tarquin blood, and they wanted Brutus to be their leader, but nope, stop that. No more electing tyrants. He isn't saying down with the king, he's saying down with all kings. And we're going to take the fight to them and anyone who wants a king. But first, we need to vote on a series of resolutions to banish the Tarquins from Rome, prevent anyone from bringing them back, abolish the kingship, and appoint two annual magistrates or consuls to assume those vacant powers. Now, it's a little anticlimactic, but so what? The votes were unanimous. The Tarquins and the monarchy in general had no more business in Rome. The city would temporarily adapt a consular system, like the one Servius Tullius was falsely accused of promoting, with Brutus and Colatinus as Rome's first co-consuls. News of what was happening didn't take long to reach Tarquinius, who was also camped at Ardea. Brutus had ordered the gates of the city closed before bringing Lucretia's body out, but a messenger escaped anyway. The king rode hard towards his city to retake control, while on a different path, Brutus was headed towards Ardea to convince the army to revolt. Tarquinius found the gates to his city shut and was informed of his permanent exile. Brutus, on the other hand, was welcomed with open arms by the army which promptly booted the three princes from their camp. Two of them fled with their parents to the Etruscan city of Chire, while Sextus fled to the Latin city of Gabii. Why he did so doesn't make any sense. Earlier, he had essentially tricked the city into submitting to his father's rule, so why he thought he'd be safe there beats me. He's killed soon after arriving, so good riddance to that. Already 509 BC has been a huge year in Roman history, and it's not over yet. What, you think the Tarquins will just mosey on off into the sunset? The monarchy's not going down without a fight. Brutus and his government will need to prove their right to rule with blood and fire, and if, if they succeed, what's next? Rome's never gone without a strong central ruler. Will their enemies believe this to be a sign of weakness and act on it? Mm, probably. But that'll have to wait till next time on the podcast history of our world. <laughs>